Chapter 21 of The Fortune Hunter, a novel of New York Society by Anna Cora Mollett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Come, my sweet girl, sent thee by me, for there is a good spirit on thy lips, will drive away from me the evil demon that beats his black wings close above my head. Coleridge Long has this secret struggled in my breast, long has it rocked and rent my tortured bosom. Smith Two days passed on, and brought with them an increase of Mr. Mordaunt's suffering. Night and day would Aria willingly have remained at his side, but the unfortunate being who shared her chamber seemed even more than her uncle to need her ministering care. For Aria's hand alone would the poor maniac receive food. Her ears were closed to every sound but Aria's voice, and she would listen to its lightest tone, and yield instant obedience to her desires. At Aria's earnest entreaty, old Tabitha had been permitted to sit during the day in the kitchen chimney corner at Mrs. Lemming's, and to sleep on the floor before the kitchen fire at night, for Mrs. Lemming's declared that she had no bed to give to the old hag. Tabitha, having expressed a desire to see her mistress, as she called her, and tend to her wants, Aria gratified the old woman by conducting her to her chamber. The instant she entered, the maniac rose shuddering from the cushion which Aria had placed for her upon the floor, and, darting to a corner of the room, stretched out her arms to prevent Tabitha's approach, and when the old woman, trembling with rage, persisted in advancing toward her, she shrieked and threw herself upon the ground, wound her fingers through her loose locks, tore them wildly from her head, and refused to be pacified until Aria forcibly ejected Tabitha and locked the door. "'Give me back my babe! Tell her to give me back my babe! There, there, do not let her see it! Hush!' Hush, little one, or she will hear you cry. Now sleep, sleep upon this poor heart, thy mother's lonely heart. Oh, lonely and sad was that mother's heart, when its joy with the sire departed. But the touch of thy cheek hath her bosom blessed. Thou art balm to the broken-hearted. Sometimes the unfortunate creature would sit for hours singing her wild songs, ever in the same strain, and ever imagining that she shielded an infant on her bosom. At other times, when she was more calm, Aria would endeavor to converse with her, and she would listen and even answer as though some small vista of her darkened brain, the intellectual day-beam, dawned again. Once she drew Aria to a window, and, looking steadily in her face, said, Who gave you those eyes? They are like those of Eustace, and like the eyes of Ernst were blue. Your eyes should have been blue. I am told that I resemble my uncle, said Aria, desiring to induce a connected strain of conversation. Do you not think so? 
What uncle? My uncle Mordaunt. Mordaunt. <laughs> you, his niece. Mordaunt's niece. <laughs> Do you hear her, Eustace? She calls you uncle. What should this little one call you? Will you let her call her uncle, Eustace? Did you swear you would be no uncle? And who shall call me mother? Hush! It will list soon. Its little tongue is striving now to form words. Mother, mother. Oh, the sweet little word. Lisp it once more, pretty one. Hush! Now she wails again, darling. Will it never cease that wailing? Hide thee on thy mother's breast. Hush that wailing cry. Safely, safely thou mayest rest. None but she is nigh. Rest, rest, rest. Aria had consulted Dr. Chadwick concerning her unfortunate friend, and his opinion was that no definite decision could be given respecting her case until the origin of her madness and its duration could be discovered. For two days past, Mr. Mordaunt had been so constantly delirious from a high fever that it was useless to look for any information from him. The doctor strenuously advised that the deranged lady should be sent to the lunatic asylum, where she would receive proper care. But Aria, who had been inspired with the tenderest affection for her new friend, earnestly pleaded that nothing should be done at present, and that the stranger should remain under her charge until her uncle recovered. As Dr. Chadwick had nothing especial to gain by opposing her wishes, he conceded, merely warning Aria that her strength was failing fast, and that he did not consider himself answerable for the consequences of her devotion to his patients. Both Rachel and Esther Clinton willingly assisted Aria in the care of her uncle, and she was thus enabled to leave his side when he was unconscious of her absence. But she seldom left him to rest. Her attentions were merely transferred. Yet she did not seem to need sleep and felt no fatigue. The strength of her mind sustained her enfeebled body. Day by day she grew paler and thinner, Yet she was free from all physical pain, and too wholly occupied to endure much mental suffering. On the third morning of her uncle's illness, Arya was sitting upon his bed, supporting his head with her arm, and bathing his temples while he slept. The fever had left him, and, for the first time since its indisposition, his slumber was calm. Arya attempted softly to steal her arm from beneath his head, but at the motion, light as it was, his eyes unclosed. Aria! Dearest uncle, heaven be praised, you are better. Better? I should be better, if to have less corporeal pain were be better. But I have inward torment that never can be cured. Your angel presence would exercise any fiend, but the two that are ceaselessly gnawing at my heart, guilt and remorse. They have bound my spirit for years. They will afflict it to eternity. There is no hope for me here. There can be none hereafter. Do not speak so, beloved uncle. If you believe that God is perfect, you must believe that he is merciful as he is just, and therefore he will pardon the true penitent, be his sins what they may. What is it to repent? 
to renounce the course of life you have discovered to be evil. Then I have no time for repentance. Aria, my child, I am dying. It is too late for me to truly repent. Contrition for my crime I have for seventeen years daily endured, but to repent truly is to renounce the crime. I have not renounced it. There is no virtue in deathbed repentance that springs from fear. This is my deathbed, and it is too late to hope for mercy. No, uncle, not too late, even though it were your deathbed, which I pray heaven it is not. Still, not too late. Christ pardoned the thief on the cross, even while the agonies of death were upon him, because he repented. Why may he not then pardon you? Remember the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. They that entered in at the eleventh hour were accepted and received their reward, even as they who toiled from the early morning. Let your repentance not be the repentance of fear. Determine that, should God spare your life, you will repent by renouncing your errors. Do not dread death as the herald of punishment. Loathe the crime, not from fear of the consequences it may entail upon yourself, but because it is a crime in the sight of heaven, and trust in God's mercy, and you will find it. For, so as he himself promised, I do loathe it. I have long loathed it. Could I live longer, I would renounce it, would do all in my power to repair the evil I have done. But I cannot hope for pardon. Yet you will be pardoned. You are pardoned already. Oh, I believe it. I feel you are so. God grant that you may live to prove how true is your repentance. Bless you, my child, for your words are of comfort. Bless you. Bless you. This is indeed heaping coals of fire on my head for the unkindness I have ever shown you. God may pardon me in his bountiful goodness, but can you? If I had anything to pardon, I would cancel the debt thus, said Arya, kissing him tenderly, since you will now permit me to do so. Mr. Mordaunt's eyes glistened with a weakness, to which, for seventeen years, they had been strangers. My better angel, too late have I permitted myself to feel how sweet it was to be loved by you. I am now going from you. I feel that I am going. But I cannot bid adieu to life without unburthening my heart and displaying to you the canker that has blasted my whole existence. Are you prepared to hear a tale of horror? Have you the strength to hear it? And oh, will you promise not to hate me, to try not to hate me? I shall ever love you, uncle. I am quite ready to listen with coolness. Mr. Mordaunt raised himself with an effort. I would not shock your ears. I would not add to your misery, but the time has come when you must know the truth. You once implored me to tell you if you had a mother living. Nay, you promised to be calm. You have one, one dear to the world, yet still among the number of its grief-worn inhabitants. At twenty-two, I was left an orphan, with one brother 
and a young sister. We were poor. But I had already begun to gain a livelihood as a lawyer, and we lived happily together upon a moderate competence. I was naturally proud and most ambitious. I looked forward to gaining eminence in my profession, to be honored and esteemed for my talents, and perhaps I had cause to do so. I was proud of the genius that my younger brother displayed. I was proud of the beauty and mental endowments of my sister. My poor brother died shortly after my father. And then I lived only for Edith, only in Edith. She was my pride, my delight. I became less selfish. I toiled for her. I desired distinction, that its glory might be reflected upon her. When she was sixteen, I presented her one of my bosom friends, a young German, with whom I accidentally became acquainted, and for whom I had conceived the truest friendship. It was reported that he was the heir of a large fortune, and that his family was noble. What more desirable person could I have selected for the husband of my beloved sister? They had hardly become acquainted when I felt sure that my anticipations would be realized. My friend visited us daily, and it was evident that his attentions were more than pleased with my gentle Edith. About this time, the business of one of my clients obliged me to travel south. I could not take Edith with me. She was so pure, so prudent, that I did not fear to leave her under the sole protection of old Tabitha, who was our only domestic. Edith wrote to me frequently, and her own happy spirit at first pervaded all her letters. She often spoke of my friend, but I looked in vain for intelligence I desired most to hear, that she was affianced to him. I was forced to be absent from home a year. Before I was gone ten months, Edith's letters had gradually become less spirited, and at times her style appeared even reserved and sad. During the tenth month of my absence, she wrote that my friend had been forced to return to Germany, and I immediately attributed the depression from which she had evidently suffered to this cause. I could not any longer endure to remain absent from her, and, finding that I could not conclude my business in a year's time, I placed the cause in the hands of another lawyer and returned home, let me rest. I cannot go on. I cannot bear to think of that return. For a few moments, Mr. Mordaunt laid back upon his pillow, less exhausted by his exertions than overpowered by his violent emotions. You must hear the rest, the dreadful rest. You must hear it now or never from my lips. I returned home. Edith received me. No, not Edith. Not the Edith I had left. I hardly recognized the blooming, buoyant, sylph-like girl that tearfully bade me adieu in the pallid, wan-featured being that more tearfully greeted me. She was enveloped in a shawl, which but imperfectly concealed her in large and unsymmetrical proportions. I knew not what to think. A suspicion crossed my mind, which almost made me frantic. I left her, sought old Tabitha. Th and threateningly demanded what ailed her mistress. She answered that she did not know, but that she feared, she suspected, she had great cause to suspect. 
Good God! I cannot repeat her words. They are too horrible. In a frenzy, I rushed into the chamber of my sister. I accused her of having dishonored our name, of having ruined herself and me. I heaped upon her every term of opprobrium, which rage brought to my mind. I cursed her. I even spurned her from me with my feet. She never replied could not reply, nor would I have permitted her. Long after my wrath had expended itself, she was lying at my feet in violent convulsions. With the existence of Tabitha, I laid her upon the bed and left her. Shortly afterwards, she gave premature birth to a female infant. My first impulse, how can I tell you, Aria, my only blessing was to murder the child. But some good angel withheld my arm. I had not yet made up my mind what course to pursue as regarded Edith, but I determined to remove the child from her and send it to a distance. For this purpose, after making my preparations for conveying the infant to a wet nurse in the country, I entered Edith's chamber. She was lying with her baby cradled upon her breast, and her eyes fixed fondly upon it. I approached her and rudely snatched away the child. She sprang up, shrieking, Oh, I shall never forget how wildly she would have followed me but fell fainting on the door. When she recovered, I was far distant. She missed the babe and, from that moment, became distracted. When I returned that evening, I found her reason had wholly fled. She did not even recognize me. It was then I conceived a horrible plan, the execution of which was perfectly feasible. My sister was dishonored. I could never henceforth acknowledge her, neither could I abandon her. I determined to proclaim that she was dead, and I would keep her in confinement as long as she lived. Old Tabitha was my only confidant. I was then living in the same house that I have always occupied. We removed Edith to a chamber in the attic, and, closing the rest of the house, I gave out that my sister had died suddenly of a violent hemorrhage, published her death to the papers, inviting our few friends to the funeral, and clad myself in mourning. The usual ceremonies took place, but so hurriedly that no questions were asked, and my story was universally believed. Seventeen years passed on, and Edith never recovered her reason. What I have daily and hourly suffered in, that time no language can convey to your pure mind. I have never prospered since that evil day. I have never had the courage to prosper. Every hour has brought retribution, and every day contrition. Yet I was chained to the stake, to be ceaselessly goaded by my own conscience. I could not turn away. I could not avow my deed and pardon Edith, that I might look for pardon from God. I was forced to go on that my misery might accumulate and crush me to eternity. But the child, Edith's child, is my Aria. Oh, I knew it. Mother, then I have a mother. I may yet contribute to her happiness and help to obliviate the past. Then you will 
acknowledge her, love her, in spite of that dark stain which flings its inky shadow even on you. Am I not her child? Am I not human? What right have I to judge or to punish? Oh, Aria, could I but have learnt of you? But my father, does he yet live? I have not seen him since we first parted. Immediately after your birth, he returned to his country and hastened to my house. He saw Tabitha and was informed by her that her mistress had given birth to a stillborn child and was herself dead. I never heard of him afterwards. I tried to seek him out to demand the satisfaction which only his life or mine could give, but I never found him. It is most probable that he instantly returned to his own country. His name. You have not told me his name. Ernst Ehrenstein. Merciful Father, I thank thee. Then he lives. I have seen him. He calls me Edith. He is here, here in New York. Here? exclaimed Mr. Mordaunt fiercely. Could I but reach him? It is not yet too late for vengeance. Let me see him. Bring him to me. Oh, if I could but live, if for two days I had but the strength which is gone forever. Two hours! You would not use it, nay, dearest uncle. You would not use it in snatching vengeance from the hand that alone can repay justice. I would not, no, Arya, I would not. I have been suffitted with crime. I desire never to see again the man who has so deeply wronged me. But I, I must see him. And my mother, dearest uncle, rest. You are exhausted. Let me leave you now. I will return soon. Go. But come back again quickly, for your presence only can bring peace. Go. Oh, I am very weak. I will try to sleep. With hasty steps, Arya returned to her own chamber. Edith was evidently awaiting her coming, and Arya, as she flung her arms about her, involuntarily exclaimed, Mother! Who spoke that word? What have they done with the child? She is here! I am your child, replied Arya, who until this moment had suppressed every sign of agitation and forced back her tears from the fear of injuring her uncle. You? You are an angel. But my little one, she may be like you one day. She is but an infant now. Yes, weep, weep, weep for the little one. I never weep. Oh, there is comfort in tears. Weep, weep, and I will weep too. Arya laid her head on her mother's knee 
and she did weep long, but not violently. She wept not for herself, not from self-reproach, nor from remorse, and therefore tears relieved her. At a gentle tap on her door she rose. Is that you, Rachel? Come in, but do not disturb my... Do not disturb her. I have much to tell you, for you can be of service to me. I have a father. Oh, Rachel, a living father. I have seen him, and through your means, I must see him again. My poor Aria, what can you mean? These last few days have been too much for you. Your senses are wandering. No, no, come with me. I will try to tell you. Aria led Rachel into another apartment, and then imparted the information she had just received from her uncle, softening his deeds without defending them, and retaining her own calmness until she spoke of her mother's error and the misery with which it had been followed. Then she wept again, and more bitterly than before. Some time elapsed before she could continue her relation. Rachel was naturally prompt of decision and when she had heard the whole history, she instantly concluded that Mr. Ehrenstein should, without delay, be informed of what had transpired. Do you agree to this, Aria? Yes, it would be for the best. I must see him, and that as soon as possible. Then I will dispatch Mr. Allen immediately. He accompanied me here and is now downstairs. The instant he returns, I will send you word and acquaint you with everything that has occurred. In the course of another hour, Mr. Allen was admitted into the presence of his friend. He found Mr. Ehrenstein up and dressed and in a state of great excitement. He had that morning read in the columns of the Herald a full and highly colored account of the burning of Mr. Mordaunt's house and the strange appearance of an unknown female who had been rescued doubts and fears and hopes were alternately contending for mastery in his mind but he knew not how to act mr mordaunt's place of refuge was not mentioned it might not even be the same individual he had once known and yet he felt sure it must be for the house which had been consumed was the same in which eustace mordaunt had ever resided the same where Ehrenstein had whiled away many a blissful hour, the same from which he had turned seventeen years ago, a lonely, heart-stricken man. When Mr. Allen communicated to him the information he had so lately obtained, Mr. Ehrenstein appeared beside himself. He offered no explanation, asked no questions. He only said, Lead me to her, lead me to her. Edith, my Edith, Edith alive. Let me see her quick, quick. I will not be delayed. Lead me to her. It was useless to argue with him. He was incapable of comprehending reason. Mr. Allen was forced to do as he desired. When they reached Mr. Lemming's, Ehrenstein would not even remain in the carriage until Miss Walton had been prepared to receive him, but persisted in following Mr. Allen into the house. Mr. Allen wrote a few words upon a card and requested it be given to Miss Walton. In another minute, Aria was clasped to her father's heart. Their embrace was silent and not short. 
and when Mr. Ehrenstein unfolded Arya from his arms, it was to gaze in her face that he might once more trace there her mother's lineaments. I felt it before. My heart leapt up the instant I saw you. How could I mistake those eyes, those delicate lips? But you are changed, my child, my beautiful child. Yet I have you, you are mine. I feel that I am a father. Once more he pressed the trembling girl to his breast and only released her to request that he might instantly be led to her mother. Oh, no, my father, that would be very dangerous. We must consult the doctor first. The reason of my poor mother is yet clouded, and one hasty act might darken it forever. But will you not see my uncle? He knew that you would be here and consented to see you. He believes himself to be dying and would not quit this world without breathing to you his pardon, she was about to say, but the word would have sounded too ungraciously upon a daughter's lips. Yes, let me see him. Oh, the villain, the dark, deceitful villain. You speak of a dying man, whispered Arya. True, true. On the dead and the dying we must alike forgive. I will be temperate. Mr. Mordaunt was sinking fast. When Arya led her father to his bedside, the sick man turned his eyes upon him, but had not the power to stretch forth his hand. Ernst, he said feebly, you have wronged me deeply, but I have learned of this child to pardon. I have wronged you, Eustace Mordaunt. You have wronged and deceived me, but I never did wrong to you in my life. "'Is she not your child?' said Mordaunt, making an effort to point to Arya. "'Yes.' "'And my poor Edith was my wife!' A cry of mingled delight and horror broke forth from the lips of Mr. Mordaunt. Mr. Ehrenstein looked to Arya, but her eyes were closed, her hands clasped and her head was supported by the wall. Her father thought she had fainted, but her lips gently moved, and then he knew that her spirit was offering up the prayer of a grateful heart. Your wife! She was your wife! Say that again! She vals! Then I am the only criminal! It is I who have destroyed her, and she was innocent. Oh, horrible, horrible. She lives. She will recover. She will yet be happy, said Arya fervently. Ah, is that no consolation? It should be. It is. But tell me further, Ernst. How could all this have been? It is told quickly. Soon after you left for Savannah, I became engaged to your sister. I desired that she should keep the engagement secret, even from you, for I had friends in America through whom it might reach my father's ears. I was his only son and the heir of large positions. 
If I married against his consent, he would disinherit me. That I did not heed, but I feared such an act would break my mother's heart, and I knew that her prejudices were such that she would not be easily reconciled to my marrying an American. Besides this, my father had already selected a wife for me after his own taste. I knew that if his consent could be obtained, I could only obtain it in person. I determined to return to my own country, yet I could not leave America without making Edith my wife, for I dreaded that some unforeseen accident might separate us. We were married privately, and without the knowledge of old Tabitha. I intended to set sail immediately for Geneva, but I had not the courage to leave my bride. Months after month, I lingered, unwilling to part, until the period of her becoming a mother was so near at hand that I would barely have time to seek my parents and return, but I was myself a father. Should you arrive in New York before me, Edith was to communicate her situation to you and show you the certificate of her marriage. This your passionate haste prevented. I failed in obtaining the consent of my parents and returned to America to proclaim Edith my wife in spite of their wishes. I hastened to your house on my arrival and learned from Tabitha that Edith was dead and her baby had never breathed. I was too stunned to know what I did. For days I wandered about the streets like a madman, and when the vessel which had brought me here set sail, I was again on board of her. Shortly afterward, my father died, leaving me his sore hair. But wealth I never enjoyed, for Edith was not there to participate in my luxuries. I could never shake off my dejection, and it preyed upon my health. I had been for many years a confirmed invalid. When I thought my end was approaching, a strong desire to visit the scenes of my former happiness seized me, and I returned to America. Soon after my arrival, I beheld this dear child, and her presence moved me so much that from that time until this, I have been confined to my chamber. Had it been otherwise, I should have sought you out before today. Fortunately for Mr. Mordaunt, whose increasing excitement threatened to produce the most unfavorable results, his interview with his brother-in-law was interrupted by the entrance of Dr. Chadwick. As soon as the latter gentleman had bestowed all necessary attention upon his patient, Mr. Ehrenstein drew him aside and, after astonishing the worthy doctor by a relation of Mr. Mordaunt's history and his own, consulted him as to the propriety of beholding his wife in her present state. Dr. Chadwick was too much bewildered to give a clear and positive opinion, but requested that an eminent physician, who had made cases of lunacy his especial study, should be called in, and that no steps should be taken until his arrival. His request was, of course, instantly complied with. Dr. Chadwick's manner towards Aria, whom he accidentally met upon the stairs, 
had evidently undergone a wonderful change. He accosted her with the greatest tenderness. "'My dear daughter,' said he, "'we must take better care of you. You must not exert yourself so much. Edgar has been dreadfully anxious of you of late, but I thought you were much too occupied to see him. I hope, my dear, that I never said anything that might offend you.' "'Oh, no, doctor, do not think of me. Only tell me what we shall do to restore my poor mother. And my uncle, can you not save him?' "'I hope so. But I cannot answer positively, my dear. All that can be done, I will do. But how are you yourself?' "'Quite well, quite well. Will Dr. Anderson be here soon?' "'I expect him any minute, my dear. And Edgar, can you not spare a moment to see him this afternoon?' "'Gladly, most gladly.' "'If my father will permit it, and I am sure he will.' "'Doctor,' called out Mr. Ehrenstein, "'who had been impatiently looking out of the window. "'I think he is coming. "'This looks like a doctor's gig, "'and I am sure it must be Dr. Anderson.' "'Mr. Ehrenstein was right, "'and after a long consultation between the two physicians, "'during which they questioned Arya very minutely "'as to her mother's symptoms,' Dr. Anderson advised that Arya should prepare her mother's mind for the arrival of her father, conversing with her as though the seventeen years of her lunacy had not elapsed, and that when she thought the moment auspicious she should summon her father. His presence might recall her reason, and then, with careful management, her entire restoration might be effected. Dr. Anderson declared that he had produced several cures in this manner, and he especially warned Mr. Ehrenstein that should his wife give signs of returning consciousness, he should restrain every appearance of emotion on his part, and calmly detail to her the occurrences of the last few years, speaking of her madness as of a long illness. He also proposed that Dr. Chadwick and himself should await the result of their experiment. As Aria and her father, hand in hand, were hastened out of the room, Dr. Anderson called them back and said, Remember, Aria, that a great deal depends on your choosing the right moment, and a great deal more, Mr. Ehrenstein, upon your calmness and self-possession. I feel it my duty to warn you that sudden shocks of this kind have produced death, although in the present instance I anticipate a favorable result. Arya entered her mother's presence alone, but her father remained immediately without the door, where he could distinctly hear every word that was spoken. "'May I sit beside you and talk to you?' said Arya, placing herself beside Edith, who was, as usual, crouching in a corner." "'Yes, yes, here, close by me. I waited for you. Why did you not come? Closer, closer there. Lay your hand upon my shoulder. Now speak softly, or you will disturb the little one. It pierces my very heart to hear it wail softly, very softly.' Arya complied with her request, and spoke in a low and most affectionate tone. You never talk to me of Ernst. Why do you not? Of Ernst? Hush, hush. Be sure nobody hears you. I promised not to say we were married. It is not time yet. But you may speak of him now. Do you know that I have news from him? No, 
used from my own Ernst? Ah, I have not had from him these three long, long months. What endless months they were! The time is always long without him. Do not breathe it. Come, close. I will whisper to you. Do you know that he will be here soon? Yes, dear mo Yes, to be sure I know it. And if you will be very calm, quite calm, I will tell you something. Yes, yes, but make haste. I cannot bear to wait. You will try not to be agitated? Yes, yes. Ernst has arrived today. He is here, not far off. Ernst, Ernst arrived here, here. Oh, bring him to me. Why does he not come to me? Aria heard the handle of the door move as though her father could no longer restrain himself from entering. She sprang up to forestall him, saying, I will bring him. But before she could reach the door, it opened, and Mr. Ehrenstein wrenched in. Ernst! My Ernst! exclaimed Edith, and, and sank into his extended arms. Aria, dreading the result of this critical moment, when the broken clue of reason might be renewed or severed forever, made a warning motion to her father to be calm and concealed herself. Edith, I have returned to you, my beloved, and we shall never, never part again. Is it indeed you, Ernst? I have watched and waited for you, and how you have changed. Why, your soft brown hair is growing white. Have you been ill? Some thought, dearest, but you have been ill, too. Yes, yes, very ill, and I have dreamed such frightful dreams. But our little one, Ernst, I must show her to you. I have seen her, dearest, and now that I behold you, my happiness is complete. But how came you to see her? She has hardly been out of my arms. Sweet Edith, will you listen to me quietly? I have something to tell you, something that you will hardly realize. Will you listen, or do not speak of our child until I have done? Yes, yes, but are you really here? Is it really you, Ernst? Am I not dreaming now? It looks like you, and yet not like... It is I, myself, Edith. Would you not know me by this kiss? Now listen. You remember I left you, and shortly afterwards your brother returned, and there was some misunderstanding between you. Oh, yes, that was very horrible. Do not speak of it. Then your daughter was born. And after that, you are very, very ill. You will hardly believe how long you were ill, for during your illness, you forgot everything. It was a long, long while. How long? So long, you will hardly believe it. A great many years. So many that your daughter is now almost grown up. 
Do you not remember they took her from you? Yes, I remember that. It was very dreadful. But you were too ill to take care of her. And now you are quite restored. She has grown up to be a beautiful girl. And you will love her when you see her. Almost as dearly as I do. Oh, I love her better, much better. But where is she? Why does she not come to me? Here is my husband. Where is my child? Here. Edith, this is your child. As Mr. Ehrenstein said these words, he held out his hand to Aria and drew her forward. And once again, the mother clasped her child to that breast upon which she had so often fancied her lying. It was an hour of too much happiness to be described. The husband realized that his wife was restored to him, and Aria that she had indeed a mother. Aria then thought that the supreme joy of that moment could not be equaled in her whole life. But that very evening she was forced to confess to herself that even the ecstasy of that instant was surpassed. It was when her father, with his arms encircling her mother's waist, took Edgar's hand and placed it in his daughter's. And Edgar, bending tenderly towards her, whispered in her delighted ear, Be entirely happy now, my Arya. All your wishes, all are gratified. My home will be a paradise with you, and I will learn of thee a prayer to him who made a home so fair. Alas, that moment of delight was short. It was interrupted by a summons from Mr. Mordaunt. Aria, with her father and Mr. Lemming, hastened to his chamber. They found him much worse and unable to speak, except so faintly that his words were hardly audible. Come near, Aria, my Aria. Where is Edith? Who told me she forgave me? I, dearest uncle, and that she was quite restored to her senses. Then I shall die. I shall die more easily. Quick, let me see her. You are all fading from me. I am going. But we will come to you soon, uncle. We shall all meet again, and in happiness, murmured Aria. Mr. Ehrenstein led in Edith. Her brother suddenly raised himself with renewed strength. For a second the mist vanished from his eyes. He endeavored to clasp his arms around her, but fell back upon his pillow, and expired with his sister's name upon his lips. In spite of their wrongs, his loss was long and deeply mourned by Edith and Aria, but each found consolation in the other. Edith's restoration proved to be permanent, and Aria found the medicine of peaceful happiness the most potent remedy for her bodily ills. Her indisposition had sprung from mental causes, and, in spite of its ravages, in the mind she found her cure. None of her friends could sympathize in her happiness so perfectly as Rachel Clinton, who made it her boast that she had not a wish ungratified. She had succeeded in winning the affection of her parents. She had inspired her husband with an even deeper attachment than her lover had experienced, and her sphere of use was daily more widely extended. 
What further could she ask? From the time that Esther Clinton discovered the true character of Mr. Brainerd, she may have been considered as cured of her monomania. At first she frequently became prey to ennui, and was often tempted to resort to her favorite novels for purpose of dispelling her weariness, but Rachel was always at hand with her counsel, and Aria succeeded in engrafting some of her own industrious habits upon her, so that at last she found amusement in occupation, the healthy tone of her mind was restored, and many fine traits of character daily developed themselves, which rendered her an invaluable friend and an ornament to her sex. End of chapter 21